So again, the title of the sermon is The Coming Storm, Days of Noah. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Mom and Dad. Thanks for commenting. Good to see you guys. The Coming Storm, Days of Noah. And this is based on Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44. So I'm going to read that. I don't have that big of a portion of scripture on the screen in one big chunk. So if you've got your Bibles, I would ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 20, 24, starting in verse 36. And if you're familiar with the book of Matthew, you will automatically know that Matthew 24 is one of those portions of scripture where the Lord uh, gives us some great insight into eschatology, into the end times, into what will take place uh, right before leading up to his return. So that's what this is about. So let's read Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44. But of that day and hour, no one knows. This is Christ speaking. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think that he will. Now, one point I wanted to make since I'm going to be preaching these sermons, I'm going to strive to, to put together a very edifying and interesting series of sermons called The Coming Storm, dealing with end times and the times in which we live. Um, I'd ask everybody to have a very open mind because we're going to be getting into some topics that I find extremely interesting, extremely challenging, uh, but they can seem rather uh, out there because we are dealing with the, the, the timeless battle of good and evil, uh, the spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. Um, so it's not the typical sermon that you might be used to hearing from me. So I'm going to be delving into some things that, that like I said, I, I found very interesting. I've studied these for years, and I'm very excited to embark on uh, tackling some of this material. But like I said, uh, I would ask you just to Consider these things with an open mind and realize that there's much of creation <clears throat> that exists that we don't see and that we won't see until we're with the Lord in his kingdom eternally. So rather than, and the one point I wanted to make also is rather than starting at the beginning of Matthew 24, I started in the middle and doing an eschatological study or a study of the end times, I'm beginning the coming storm series at verse 36 in Matthew. The reason I'm doing this one first is order to convey the proper attitude and mindset that we should strive to have on the issues we'll be discussing and as well as the ways uh, we should be viewing the age in which we live and how it ties into the prophecies pointing to the apocalypse in scripture. Now that's a word we've heard 
constantly if we're if we've been a Christian for any amount of time, apocalypse. And even in a worldly context, people view apocalypse as uh, the final war, the final battle between the Lord and Satan, the final battle between good and evil. When Christ uh, defeats Satan completely, he's already defeated him on the cross, but he he crushes him and sends him into the abyss uh, to be punished eternally. But that is not the definition of the word apocalypse. If you look at the word apocalypto or apocalypto from the Greek, um, a very concise definition of that word uh, is to take off the cover or to disclose or to reveal. So that would be something I think we should pray about as we look at these things, is that the Lord would take the cover off and reveal to us truth so that we see these things through the proper perspective, through God's eyes, and we see and we learn the things that he wants us to see and learn, and that we grow closer to him through these things. So again, a definition of the word apocalypse could be to take off the cover, to reveal, or to disclose. So that's what apocalypse means. It's not uh, a final battle. It's to reveal something. Luke 17, 30 says, So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed? On that final day, Judgment Day, when the Son of Man is revealed, all our questions are answered. And like I've talked about before, uh, those in Christ will kneel before him in adoration and praise and absolute joy. And those that have rejected him will kneel before him in abject horror and terror because they know that their time is past uh, when they had the opportunity to accept him and to trust in him and to follow him to be saved. It'll be too late then. So uh, Luke 17, 30, let me put that on the screen. As usual, I forget to show you guys these verses. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed? And i got to share my screen here. There we go. Okay. I'm probably going to go back and forth with these verses today. So we can under so you guys can see them more clearly. And I'll move over here a little bit so I'm more centered in the frame. So so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed? Now I hope this series is going to change the way that we look at the world around us, and especially in the times in which we live, uh, and that our discernment will be sharpened by the word of scripture, that we will understand things more clearly from a scriptural perspective. Uh, and the next sermon, probably, I'm not sure, but in this series of the coming storm, we'll begin to address specific issues and events from the times that we're living in and how they relate to scripture and prophecy. The reason this is fascinating for me, like I said, is I, I did this series originally. I started it in 2015 and I did a few sermons and then some other topics came in that had to be addressed. So I, so I put it on hold. But it's amazing going back through my notes and how many things have, have happened just since 2015 that I would not have even dreamed of. I told my wife the other day that it's interesting. Um, I started studying, I guess, what you could call um, fringe information. Um, uh, trying to find truth. Uh, I understood probably 15 years ago that, 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 that really the government and the mainstream media was completely lying to us and, and leading us astray. And we needed to search for alternative ways of finding out the truth of what's happening. And 
what I shared with my wife is it's amazing. There's a few individuals that I was learning so much from at that time that became very well known as the world began to spiral more and more out of control, who were then vilified and made to look um, terrible in the eyes of the world. The media just did everything it could to destroy them. But now as I look back at all the things that they taught, how true so much of it was. And so this is really interesting. If you studied any of these things for any amount of time, you cannot deny the fact that so much of what is happening has been warned about. And I, I guess you could use the word prophesied, but, but people have been warning us about it mainly for a very long time. And now we see these things coming to pass. So I really want to start looking at things more closely as we go forward. Now, one point I want to make is for centuries, Christians have convinced themselves that they were living in the end times. This has been something that you see from the very beginning of the church. Christians have convinced themselves that they're living in the end times and Christ is going to return in a very short time. Many groups claiming to be Christian, but with either no grasp or concern for the truth of Scripture, have forecasted dates for Christ's return. How many times have we seen that happen? If you even go back to just the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, how many so-called prophets or, or self-professed apostles have, have said that they've been given a revelation or they, they've been given a gift of some special type of study, and they know that the Lord is going to return either on this date or between these dates, and it never happens. They're always discredited, and they show themselves really to just be deceived and foolish. And the reason they're really deceived and they're foolish and, and they look like idiots when they do that is because they're going directly against something that Christ himself tells us in Scripture. One of the verses, that the first verse that we talked about today, Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. We are not supposed to know the exact time of Christ's return. Obviously, we are to, to have our eyes open and our hearts open, and we are to study the scriptures and to apply them to what we see going on in the world. So we'll have an idea, you know, this could really be moving closer to the time of Christ's return, but we don't know for sure. And I think we really run into a lot of problems in the modern day because we are so used to things happening so quickly. You know, I was thinking about if you look back in the Bible and you look at like Abraham and Moses and Noah, the events that took place in their lives took place over very long periods of time. And now we look back and we think that a long period of time is from, say, 1960 to 2020. It's not. It's like that in God's timing. So even if we are living very close to the return of Christ, that could be very close on, any, on God's time frame. But from our time frame, could still be 50 years in the future. We don't know. So I think we've got to really strive to, like I said, to look at things biblically and not to look at things from a worldly context and try to measure things in a way that we're used to, but, look at, but measure things according to the way God does things. So Matthew 24, 36 says, oh, let me put that on the screen. Again, I forgot. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He says that day and hour. So what that tells us is God has a certain day and a certain hour fixed in his plan for Christ's return. He already has that pinpointed in his 
eternal timeline. But notice that it says, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So Christ re refers to himself saying that even he doesn't know the time of his return, or at least not at that time when he was here in his flesh. Because Christ, by becoming human, what? Had, had to rely on the Father faithfully. See, when Christ became human, he was still divine, but he gave up much of his divine, I guess you could say, uh, powers or attributes would be the word. There were things that he was ignorant of while he was on earth. That's why it's called his humiliation. He became much less than who he was the second person of the Trinity, God, in order to become one of us so that he could die to save us. And part of that was the fact that he wasn't completely omniscient while he was in human form. Luke 8, 45 through 47 gives us another example of that. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So he asked, Who was it that touched me? He didn't know who she was. So that gives us an idea of the fact that, that he'd condescended in his humiliation to becoming man, and that affected his omniscience as the second person of the Trinity. Consider that Jesus spent time in prayer before the choosing of the 12 apostles. Now, obviously, God had chosen them before the foundation of the world. Those individuals were set apart for that ministry. That's what their work was to be. Christ spent time in prayer before he chose the 12 apostles. Why? To get the guidance he needed from the Father. See, the Father was sustaining him as he was doing his work here on earth. Jesus constantly prayed. He was constantly seeking the Lord's strength in prayer. So he would learn. Uh, he wouldn't learn. He, he was seeking the Lord's guidance in prayer in everything that he did in his earthly life and ministry. You see? Christ carried out his ministry and journeyed toward the cross in faith. This is a very interesting and important point not in omniscience. So Christ carried out his ministry and journeyed toward the cross in faith, not in omniscience. Omniscience would have negated the need for faith. The Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus exemplified faith because he had given up his omnipotence and his omniscience to a great extent in order to become one of us to save us. If he could have stopped everything and controlled what was going on, he wouldn't have needed faith, you see? But what does he say? If I cry out to the Father, he could send a legion of angels to defend him. So he was relying on the Father while he was in his human form, you see? Let's look at verse 37, Matthew 24, 37. For as the so as for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what did Christ mean by that? And that this is the crux 
of today's message if we're going to apply this to the times in which we're living right now. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And as we read through this, certain things we're going to see reflect the days of Noah. Lawlessness, rebellion, apostasy, pride, etc., etc., etc. The fruit of the un. Uh, the unredeemed or the, the unregenerated human nature. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Actually, I'm giving you a series of verses here to refer to that make this point. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. for people. Now, just picture today's world as I read through this. Picture social media, the fake news, the mainstream news. Picture all that. And just in this context, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. That's a pretty hard thing that Paul writes there because he tells Christians, avoid such people. Well, if you look at the world around us, that means you have to avoid just about everyone because that's really just a picture of the world in which we live. That's these things sound so harsh and so distasteful and they grate on your nerves. But when you look at these things, if you turned on the news this evening or you even just turned on modern television, these things would be celebrated and glorified constantly. All of these horrible attributes are const are just a part of our society now. And it's almost like we've become desensitized to many of them. It's really sad. But Paul warned us to avoid those things and the people that exemplify those things. Let's look at Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And again, we're talking about the days of Noah. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Look at Genesis 6, 8 through 9. This one's really interesting. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, the King James Version of that says, Noah, and he, and he was perfect in his generations. And you'll see why that's a very interesting thing to consider in light of what we're dealing with so much in modern society as we go forward in this message. So just remember that. Noah was perfect in his generations. Um, there's a couple authors that I followed for a few years that I guess you could say are on the fringe of Christian writing. Um, 
I don't agree with everything they say theologically. In fact, one of these men, uh, they're both good Christian men. One of one of them died a few years ago uh, from cancer, I believe. One of them is still writing. Um, for some reason, they tend to become involved with some some uh, wacky Christian uh, people on the internet, and that may not be as much anymore because I know they were starting to be warned about people they were associating with. But I have to say their research has always very much impressed me. And when I read their works, I look for things I can learn from their writing uh, and how the world, how prophecy and scripture, how eschatology may be reflected in the world. They're very good at disclosing those things. So I don't really study them theologically. So I just wanted to make that preference. But uh, their name is, is Tom Horn is the main writer. And then Chris Putnam was the, was the man that died a couple years ago. Uh, they wrote a book called Exo Vaticana. And in that book, uh, and it talks about really uh, the evil in the papacy and in the Roman Catholic Church. And they've uncovered just horrific uh, systems of evil and Satanism that, that's existed in the Roman Catholic Church for years. And I'll get into more of that later. But in that book, Exo Vaticana, um, they reference a writer named George Hawkins Pember, who lived from 1837 to 1910. And he wrote a book called Earth's Earliest Ages, where he writes about the days of Noah that we're talking about. And one point I wanted to make that really interested me before I get into this uh, reference from George Hawkins Pember is uh, Chris Putnam and Tom Horn wrote another book back in, I think, 2017, might have been 2014, I forget, called Petrus Romanus. And it was about a prophecy uh, in the Roman Catholic Church that, that there would be a last, a final pope. And in that book, they made a prediction uh, that Pope Benedict, the current pope, uh, would step down in a very short time. That was an extremely bizarre claim for them to make that the Pope would step down in a very short time. The reason is, is that a Pope had not stepped down in 600 years. So how could they come up with this? The fascinating thing is, I think they published the book, I forget what year it was, but they published the book like in November or December and the following April, I believe it was, Benedict stepped down um, just a few months after the book was published. And everybody was like, they, they had these guys on radio shows all over the world because they couldn't believe that they called it. So, so they do have some very good insight to what's going on. But anyway, I want to refer to George Hawkins Pember. They refer to him in, in his book, Earth's Earliest Ages. Now, Pember was an English theologian. Um, and the original preface from his book states that he endeavored to show the characteristic features of the days of Noah were reappearing in Christendom, and therefore that the days of the Son of Man could not be far distant. So again, like I said, this guy wrote in the, in the 1800s, very early part of the 1900s, and he endeavored to show the characteristic features of the days of Noah were reappearing in Christendom, and therefore that the days of the Son of Man could not be far distant. Now, in his book, Pember lists seven parallels between the antediluvian age, this is that's the age before the flood, and the days preceding Christ's return. So he's making a comparison between what mankind was like in the days of Noah, right before the flood, and then what he thinks mankind would be like in the days immediately preceding Christ's return. And he had seven parallels that he listed. Number one, 
that there was an overemphasis on God's mercy at the expense of his holiness. Now, that one's very interesting. Look at what so much of modern Christian talks about. God is love. God is merciful. God wants you to have your best life now. That watered-down gospel that accomplishes nothing, just making people feel good and ignoring the holiness of God. That, you cannot argue, is 90% of the modern church. Number two, a disregard for gender roles and contempt for marriage. I don't even need to explain that one. That's blatant in our society. Number three, how technology and entertainment entice man away from worshiping God. How much more time could we spend in prayer and study of the word if these nightmares hadn't come along? Think about that. How much more time would we be in communion with God, prayerfully studying his word, if the smartphones that are the stupidest thing in the world hadn't come along. Think about that. Now, a lot of people will use the excuse, well, I have my Bible on my phone. Okay, that's fine. Or or I witness to people on social media. I, I'm sorry, I don't accept that. I've, I have tried to find a valid way to justify Christianity on Facebook and social media, and I just don't see it. There's something that just falls so short. I just see very little, if any, fruit in those avenues. So um, my two cents is turn off the phone as much as possible, pick up an old-fashioned paper Bible and an old-fashioned journal with pages in it, and start studying the Word of God that way. Um, there's just something very special about that. Again, that's my opinion. That's my two cents. But um, I very much believe that technology and entertainment is, is one of the biggest reasons that the modern church is as messed up as it is. And it's been going on for so long that people don't even realize it. Number four, the alliance between the nominal church and the world. Again, 90% of what professes to be the modern Christian church is in the world. They are not in the body of Christ. Number five, a vast population increase. We can't argue that that's happening. Number six, the rejection of prophetic warnings and preaching. The, the, the rejection of prophetic prophetic warnings and preaching. People don't want to hear preaching. They want to hear a feel-good, humanistic message. So that's very accurate. And number seven, seven. Now, this is the one where it gets a little weird. The appearance upon earth of beings from the principality of the air and their unlawful intercourse with the human race. What's he talking about? I'll repeat that. The appearance upon earth of beings from the principality of the air and their unlawful intercourse with the human race. Demons, satanic entities. This is where it gets very interesting when you start studying this stuff. Now, I agree with Horn and Putnam that the violence of Noah's day and the perversion of lots when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed are close to their ultimate fruition in what we see in the world around us now. Sodom and Gomorrah was just one small area in the world that God destroyed because of their sin. That has That's all over the world now. The world is Sodom and Gomorrah. The world is Babylon. It's amazing. Um, there's an article I'm referring to here. It's from a site called khouse.org, a man named Chuck Missler, who preached and taught for years. Very interesting guy to listen to. Um, 
was very into, like I said, that fringe study of Christian prophecy and end time study. Again, he was a man that I didn't agree with theologically. I think he fell short in many ways because he was very much into the Arminian belief. He didn't believe in predestination. He didn't believe in election. Um, and that's where he was. He was really he had a huge problem there. But his study on on end times prophecy and like I said, that, that those French kind of topics was extremely interesting. I listened to him uh, for years when I was younger until I really had my eyes open to the truth of of reformed theology. And I realized that, that he was really off as far as his gospel message. Um, he trusted in the Lord. I believe he was a Christian. But that Arminian message really infects and messes up a lot of people. And unfortunately, he was trapped in that. But he had some very interesting work that he did. So from his website, um, there was a, an article entitled Return of the Aliens, as the days of Noah were, Return of the Aliens. Um, and it says Genesis 6 indicates that the sons of God, in that article, he says Genesis 6 indicates that the sons of God uh, in the in the Hebrew is the term Benai uh, Elohim, took wives of the daughters of men, which gave birth to the Nephilim. And folks, if you think this is out there, this is in the Bible. And that, that's why I'm, I'm getting into this stuff. Because like I said, these topics seem very esoteric, very extreme, and very bizarre. These things are in the Bible. You can look up the word Nephilim. And what I just talked about is written up. So Genesis 6 indicates that the sons of God, the Bani Elohim, took wives of the daughters of men, which gave birth to the Nephilim. So let's look at Genesis 6, 4 that talks about this. And it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So it's a reference to the Nephilim here. The Benai uh, Elohim is a term that refers to angels, or you could say fallen angels. It occurs four times in the Old Testament and is rendered angels of God in the ancient Septuagint translation. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this is all from his article, I believe. The intrusion of certain angels into the human family resulted in unnatural offspring termed Nephilim, which derives from the Hebrew word nephal, which is to fall, or the fallen ones. The Greek Septuagint renders this term gigantes, which actually means earthborn. This is often misunderstood to mean giants. That's the derivative of that word giants, which they also happen to have been. But, the, but, but this is where they get the term Nephilim, the fallen ones that were earthborn, and they just happen to be giants. Jude 1, 6 through 7 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So these things happened in, in, in history, and it's recorded in Scripture. Fallen angels came to earth, mated with human women, and they had a race of Nephilim that were like a hybrid between angels and humans. It's one of the reasons that God brought the flood. The problem is they came back again after the flood, and that's in Scripture as well. 
So it seems that this part, this now this is interesting. It seems that this was part of Satan's stratagem to corrupt the line of Adam to prevent the fil fulfillment of the messianic redemption. Noah was apparently unique in that his genealogy was still uncorrupted. Think about what I'm saying here. It seems that this was part of Satan's stratagem to corrupt the line of Adam to prevent the fulfillment of the messianic redemption. What does that mean? Why would Satan, why would his evil fallen angels come, mate with women, and create this hybrid race? What did Satan know? Satan knew that the salvation of mankind, that his defeat was going to come about, how? Through the seed of the woman. Through a perfect, holy human being who was divine, who would be the perfect, stainless sacrifice. So this could very much have been an attempt to corrupt the bloodline of the human race to stop the coming of the Messiah by corrupting that bloodline, by, by bringing more evil into the human race, you see? It's a very interesting thing to consider. Now, notice again, let's go back to this verse in Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. That's the King James Version. Noah was apparently unique in that his genealogy was still uncorrupted. And if you look at, at Noah's lineage, it leads directly to Christ the Messiah. So it was not corrupted by these fallen angels. Just a very interesting way to look at these things. And again, what are we doing here? We're bringing in the gospel message into this study. You see? You got to look at everything from a gospel perspective. It makes sense. Why would Satan do that just to do it? He was He's always after corrupting the work of Christ, corrupting the gospel. So it makes perfect sense that he would try to corrupt the human race in such a way that it would stop the coming Messiah. But he never beats God. God always works out his plan according to his will. Now, I feel that the recent obsession with the prevalence of alien UFO activity is the return of the fallen angels of Genesis 6. And I get into this Later, when I start talking about prophecy in cycles of history, and one thing you really start understanding when you study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and then you look at the book of Revelation, one of the biggest mistakes that the church has made for so long is, especially in the West, is we read the book of Revelation and we want to interpret it chronologically. But one thing you learn is that Hebrews, Jews, rarely wrote in a chronological manner like we do. They wrote from different perspectives in time, and they weren't always chronological. So the book of Revelation, if you look at it as a, a revelation to John, a revealing, taking the cover off, disclosing to John these revelations of things that were going to happen in time, but he was given views of these things in different ways. This is the way that history is going to work out, and it's going to be cyclical, not chronological. 
cyclical. And that's why I, I really feel that the prevalence of alien and UFO activity is the return of fallen angels from Genesis 6. That's why we're seeing so much of a, so many more instances of what they call abductions and aliens, UFO sightings and things like that. It's demonic activity. See, and these things don't have to travel great distances. That's the other mistake we make. We're trying to figure out, well, how can they get from another planet to here? Maybe we'll get into interdimensionality in another time. See, uh, it says in scripture that rejoice, uh, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. The Lord is at hand. See, the Lord is right here. He's in another dimension, but he's very close to us. Evil, the angelic realm is right here, but it's in another dimension that we can't see. It's a very fascinating thing to study is, is dimensional, uh, dimensionality, the study of different dimensions, I guess you could say. So I'm going to make that point again. I believe that alien and UFO effectivity is the return of the fallen angels of Genesis 6. Now listen to this. The restraint could very well be lifted in the reason why evil and apostasy are so rapidly increasing. And I think one thing that so many people are struggling with right now is trying to figure out what happened in the world? I mean, if you look, 2020 has been a year unlike anything we've ever experienced. We've got this, this, this COVID virus, which they've proven has a, like a 99.7 or 8% survival rate, yet it's destroyed economies all over the world. They're saying that starvation next year will be twice what it was previously, simply because so many governments have bought in to the idea that they have to lock down their, their, their societies in order to stop this virus that isn't, isn't even that much of a threat. If you look at countries that have just continued forward and ignored it, they're doing fine. I was just in Kenya a few weeks ago, and uh, people are suffering off the charts in poverty because their economy was already struggling. And then when they shut it down, now you've pushed people even deeper into poverty. So they're suffering horrifically. But right next door in Tanzania, their president said, no, we're, we're not going to do that. It hasn't been an issue there. You see? But we can't get our heads around how can something like this be used in such a way where it's so obviously being used for nefarious means. Lies have been exposed, but, but people continue to believe what they're told. I mean... You know, I told my wife the other night, like Trump or dislike Trump, I think one of the greatest things he's done is he's he's brought into the mainframe or to the to the main he's brought into the mind of most Americans the fact the term fake news. So maybe more people begin to question what they're told on the news. But people even what fascinates me through this whole thing is even when things are shown to be false and shown to be lies, how many people don't even want to admit that? They just want to follow along with whatever the prevailing narrative is. You see? So we're witnessing what they call cognitive dissonance, where people, when faced with the fact that they believe something that is obviously false, cling to it regardless of the fact that it's false. It's been a problem down through history. False teachings thrive on this mindset. You see? So it's very interesting. But then the other thing is, look at the riots and look at the hatred that is being played out in America now. It's crazy. Uh, again, this is my opinion. I've been looking at the legal arguments that, and, the, and the evidence that Trump's team is uncovering um, for voter fraud. 
I think that they are probably going to be victorious. I think it's going to be a brutal battle. I think they're going to have to go to court. But I think in the long run, they are going to prove that this that this election was fraudulent. And I think Trump will stay in office. I think that is going to lead to violence in the streets and things like we can't even imagine. It's just the way it is. And I'll tell you, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm, I belong to the Constitution Party, so I'm not gung-ho Trump. But I, compared to the options that are out there, I think, yeah, he's doing a good job. I don't want to get political. But the reason I'm making this point is something's broken loose to see homosexuality not just accepted. See, just a few years ago, I was preaching on the fact that it's wrong that the Supreme Court made homosexual marriage legal. That's nothing now. Now it's being shoved down your throats. And then they brought in, uh, so you had the homosexuality accepted. Now you're going to just concede, you're going to see depravity continuing. But we're seeing violence, we're, we're seeing hatred, we're seeing all the attributes of evil that I talked about earlier totally played out on a radical scale right now. In just a year, the things that have happened are mind-blowing. Why is that? And I think... 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 12 talks about this. It says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. He's talking about the end times, that the final day, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, we could get into a discussion on who is the Antichrist. It's talking about the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And again, Americans, people, especially in the West, want to see a very clear man rise to power, do the things that are spoken of in prophecy, in scripture, okay, that's the Antichrist. He's identified. What if the Antichrist has already been revealed? What if it's the Pope? What if it's the office of the Pope? See, the time that that evil has come into the Roman Catholic Church is not that big of a gap of time if you look eternally. I'm just giving ideas here, different ways of us uh, for us to look at who that man of lawlessness might be. It may be the Pope. It may be a president or a world ruler in the future. I don't know, but what I'm saying is because we this is revelation and we're trying to delve into things that are very difficult to, to be clear about, it's it's dangerous, dangerous for us to make one decision on what this is what I think it is, and I'm going to cling to this regardless of anything else. We've got to just, I think when it comes to prophecy and it comes especially to uh, apocalyptic writing, which is the book of Revelation, we have to get a flavor for it. And we have to just look at the world and say, yeah, I see how that's applying to this. But we have to be very careful because apocalyptic language is symbolic. It's not literal. So let's look at this again. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, one point I do want to make there, the temple of God in a New Testament context is talking about the church, the true church, the body of Christ. The temple in Jerusalem doesn't mean anything now. That's why the curtain was torn at the crucifixion. You see? 
the curtain was torn because the temple no longer had a had a use. So I would be very careful interpreting that as meaning the temple in Jerusalem, and I would look more for a false teacher in the Christian church if the Antichrist is still someone to be identified going forward. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what, it, and now this is making my point that I should have gotten to earlier. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, this really points more to someone in the future. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all powers and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Something has to, there's a power that has to, a restraining power that will be lifted in the end times and evil will increase. That's the point I'm making. And I think that explains, could explain much of what we're seeing now. Now, I could be wrong because you could go back to the 1930s when Hitler was coming to power in Europe and make the same point. That's what I mean, cycles. You could go back to AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed and make the same point. You see? So we've got to be very careful. But it's a very interesting thing to consider. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'm using this verse to make the point that we are dealing with a cosmic battle between good and evil, God and Satan. And I love looking at it in this context because when you look at it politically and you look at it humanistically, it becomes so depressing you won't want to get out of bed in the morning. But if you look at it and you realize that what we are witnessing are aspects or portions of this timeless battle between good and evil, it becomes fascinating. It's one of the most awesome times to be alive in human history right now if you look at it that way. Now let's look at Daniel 2.43. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. In Daniel 2.43, as you saw the... Uh, wait a second, I'm not going to get into that one yet. I wanted to give the King James Version first. And whereas they sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men is commonly explained by commentators as relating to marriages between different kingdoms or nations, as shown in the ESV version that's the top verse there. But if you look at the King James Version, Yeah, the ESV refers to marriage, but the King James Version seems to allude more to the demonic influences that I was referring to in Genesis chapter 6 and in the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. So look at Daniel 2.43 here, 
And then Daniel 2.43 in the King James, or in the, yeah, the, in the ESV, King James was on top. I got him backwards. That's why I'm confused, you guys. I'm sorry. As you saw the iron mix with soft clay, so, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. That's the ESV. The, the, the King James, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. That goes back to that point I was making about the corrupting influence of Satanism, satanic entities on the seed of men. That's that's the point I was trying to make. Sorry for the confusion there. So the King James seems to allude more to the demonic influences seen in Genesis 6 and in the enmity or the hatred between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Look at this verse. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. He was talking about the enmity between Satan and Christ, but I also believe the seed of the, the woman, the human race in general as well. I believe there's two contexts there that it's talking about. So again, that goes back to help reiterate that point that I was talking about earlier, that Satan is in enmity against the Lord, and he's doing anything he can to mess up God's plan of salvation, and that includes corrupting the seed of the woman. And I believe that could be why the Nephilim came about. Now let's look at Luke 21, 25 through 27. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great Glory. We were given this amazing picture of what it's going to be like when the Lord returns. It's just powerful. Now, Tom Horn says, again, I'm referring to him in another book he wrote called The Hybrid Age. He's, and, we're, and we're turning gears here. And the reason I wanted to share that last verse, I want you to maybe underline where he says in Luke 21, 25 through 27, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Ask yourself, what is that referring to? If these UFO sightings are demonic and demonic entities are breaking through to this dimension, would that not horrify people? People Would people not be fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world? Could just be referring to violence, war. This seems much deeper to me than that. That's why I put that verse in there. Think about that. You could be seeing a replay of these evil beings that existed in the days of Noah. You see? Something to think about. Again, I don't know for sure about these things, but I've studied them a lot, and some of these explanations seem to make the most sense. You see? So I really want you guys to consider that. Now let's look at this from Tom Horn again in The Hybrid Age. He writes, in recent years... And as I read this, I want and again, I want you to think of that corrupting of the seed. In recent years, astonishing technological developments have pushed the frontiers of humanity toward far-reaching morphological transformation that promises in the very near future to redefine what it means to be human. What science has already done with genetically modifying plants and animals will soon apply to Homo sapiens. An international, intellectual, and fast-growing cultural movement known as 
transhumanism, I would very much remember that phrase with what's going on in the world. A cultural movement known as transhumanism supports this vision, as does a flourishing list of U.S. military advisors, bioethicists, law professors, and academics, which intend the use of genetics, robots, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and synthetic biology. Now think about that synthetic biology or what's called Grin's technologies as tools that will radically redesign our minds, our memories, our physiology, our physiology, that one's important, our offspring, that's important, they're all important, and per, and even perhaps, as Joel Garreau in his best-selling book, Radical Evolution, claims, our very souls. Transhumanism will be something that I get into much more going forward. It's something that I've been interested in for a long time. This one really struck me as I was working on these notes this morning, our very souls. Somebody sent me a message, a friend of mine from England last week, and he heard a quote from a woman. I think she, she was she was one of the guinea pigs for these, um, they call them test subjects, for the COVID-19 uh, vaccine. And he claims she was given the vaccine, and now she claims that she feels like the vaccine destroyed God, that it destroyed anything in her that was spiritual. Now, that sounds extremely far-fetched and radical, but the reason that interests me is because, I've and I've got to do the research on this. I've got notes on it somewhere. It was Bill Gates, or don't quote me, or someone in the last five to 10 years that gave a talk, and they talked about developing some type of drug that would eliminate what they called the religious feeling or the religious leaning of humanity so humanity could function what they, you know, they said more intelligently. This is something I just, I'll get into later. But when he sent me that last week, I thought that's really interesting that she said that, that she feels like it killed her spirituality. When you consider what I just read, like I said, this stuff's far out there. It's scary, but I think it's something we have to be very aware of. So transhumanism will be a topic of, uh, in the future as we go forward. Now, applying this to the times in which we live today. Consider the above, what I just talked about, in regards to the looming and probably illegally enforced COVID-19 vaccine. <laughs> this is from an article at naturalnews.com. That's a great site. He's been around for years. I've, I've probably been reading this guy since 2015 or, or earlier, maybe 2010. Uh, so he has a website called naturalnews.com. And it's entitled, Doctor Warns the COVID-19 Vaccine Could Alter Your DNA. That's the title of this article. I just took some excerpts from this article. I want you to think about, in light of what I just talked about, as I read this, think about Satan trying to mess with the seed of the woman, Satan trying to corrupt the human race, the Nephilim, and then listen to this from this article. This leads Dr. Madej to wonder at which point a person is no longer themselves, and she's writing about the COVID vaccine, are no longer themselves after drugs or vaccines have changed their DNA. Since it's possible to patent genet <coughs> genetically modified material, 
Can a human whose DNA has been changed using a patented drug be considered a genetically modified organism that can also be patented and owned? Interesting. Such a vaccine would work very differently from traditional vaccines. These new mRNA vaccines essentially tell human cells to create the properties of an infectious organism. In the case of COVID-19, the vaccine places genetic instructions taken from coronavirus into human cells, prompting the cells ribosomes to generate infectious spike proteins. This would spur the immune system to attack the body's proteins and spring B cell antibodies into action. Even though this process might create antibodies in vitro, that does not guarantee that people will be granted full spectrum immunity from such a vaccine because a complete adaptive response would also involve T cells. There's also the fact that coronaviruses mutate over time. Folks, COVID-19 is a cold. It's a flu bug. They change constantly. So there's also the fact that coronaviruses mutate over time, which means that the mRNA sequences that are used in the vaccines would have to be modified every year to keep up with the latest strains, and people would have to get injections on a regular basis to offer any degree of continued protection. That is a dream come true for stockholders in big pharma companies. You've got this virus that they've been able to convince the whole world is horrific. You convince the whole world to get the vaccine. And then six months down the road, you say, whoops, you know what? The coronavirus mutated. We've changed the vaccine. Everybody line up. We're going to do it again. Can you think of the income created from such a thing? So just from greed alone, you see how evil this could be. She continues, unfortunately, the rush to get a vaccine to market means that long-term studies into the health effects of inserting a gene into the genome in this way will not be possible. What we do know, however, is that preliminary clinical results have shown that compounding injections like this can cause negative effects and precursors to chronic disease. With higher doses, those risks rise. Look back over the hundred, the last hundred years, and look at the increase, statistically, percentage-wise, of heart disease, cancer, things like that. A lot of it has to do with diet, lack of exercise, but a lot of it has to do with the vaccines that are corrupting the human body, folks. This one's horrific. What they're talking about here. And you've got people dying for this because they are sitting and watching ABC and NBC and CBS and CNN and Fox or whatever it is and just believing everything they're told. And we don't know what this is going to do. Even if they do not have a sinister agenda, which I believe they do, even if this is not a nefarious uh, effort to try to do something very evil to the human population, which I think it is. The fact remains that if you look at all the vaccines down through history, they take, I think, the average is seven to 10 years to develop an effective one. And you're going to do this one in a few months and then just shove it into everybody's arm. Got to think about that. But let's get back to my point. Think about it from a satanic standpoint and the fact that they're dealing with DNA sequencing here. Very interesting way to look at this, isn't it? 
something to really think about. Really interesting. Gives it a whole new dimension, doesn't it? I'm taking a long time today, you guys. I apologize. This is just one of those sermons um, that goes on. So I'm going to go a little bit more quickly now. Let's look at Matthew 24, 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. People were wrapped up in themselves and in their own pursuits. Look at the prevalence of ignorance in the world around us. People are totally into pleasure. People were eating and drinking and seeking fun and amusement when they should have been repenting and praying. So again, if we put that in the modern context, something could come along that makes all these problems seemingly disappear. Everybody thinks everything's great. According to this, that's when the Lord could return. Interesting to think about. Matthew 24, 39 through 41. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. They were unaware. The King James Version says they knew not. Like so many in the modern world in the contemporary church who are unaware, asleep to the truth of what is happening around them. You've got to pay attention, especially in the times in which we live, and strive to see things through a biblical perspective. The day of Christ's return and judgment will be a day that takes people by surprise and will be a day of eternal separation. Matthew 25, uh, 34, 41, and uh, 25, 31 through 34, and then verses 41 through 46. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall all shall be gathered, all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So much of the contemporary church flatters, amuses, and entertains goats when they should be feeding the sheep of Christ's flock. And that's why it's important for messages like I'm talking about today to get out to people because they put the gospel into the perspective of what we're dealing with in the world. You know, I'd ask anybody that watches this regularly, share this with other people so that they can maybe wake up as well. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Again, you don't know. It's these guys that claim that they can tell you when he's going to return, they don't know. We're told in Scripture that. But we are told what? Wake up and stay awake. Be alert. Keep looking for the proper signs. We are to be awake, alert, and active. Christians should never be passively waiting. This is one of the reasons that I reject the pre-tribulation rapture idea, because it leads people to say, wow, I'm so glad we're not going to be here during the tribulation. The Lord's going to take us back. What does that do for the furtherance of the gospel? What do you tell people that are going through tribulation all over the world right now for their faith? No, the tribulation will happen before the Lord's return. 
The Bible talks about this age and the age to come, not this age and a seven-year period and then a thousand-year period and then the final. It talks about this age and the age to come, and we can get into more of that later. So wake up and stay awake. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 6 says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for it. No need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You're not ready for him. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. The Christian is awake and sharp and vibrant and alive, fascinated by what's going on in the world, not afraid of it, because we know that the Lord is in control of it. Notice it says peace and security. The New World Order We'll get into that later. Everybody's familiar with that phrase now. It's interesting. I've known that phrase for years. And if I would have used that phrase 10 or 15 years ago, people might have said, what do you mean a new world order? Now everybody knows what it means. The new world order uses the stratagem order out of chaos. And that'll probably be a future sermon. Order out of chaos. The new world order loves to create chaos so that they can provide a system of their devising and they tell people this is the solution. Is that not what we're witnessing right now? Order out of chaos? They're claiming that this vaccine is going to be the, the order that stops the chaos of what's going on? Another thing to really consider. And as I go through these, I'm not just trying to throw my opinions out. I'm just trying to provide you guys with different ways of looking at things. Because when you start becoming familiar with these things, you will literally turn on the mainstream news and just shake your head because you'll start identifying how they're pointing everything in a new world order direction. And that new world order direction is exactly the opposite direction of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Matthew 23, 43 and 44 to close out. But know this, that if the master of the house, who's the master of the house? Satan had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We're in Satan's domain. We have to accept that. And he doesn't know when the Lord's going to come back and kick his butt out of here and clear out and, and bring in his kingdom. You see? Watch for the Lord. Think of his return. Be mindful of the condition of your heart and mind that you will find that he will find you in a state that pleases him when he returns. Think of that. If the Lord does return right now, what's your condition of your heart? The condition of your mind? What are you meditating on, thinking about? Are you in his word or are you staring at Facebook? You see? What are you doing? Live faithfully to God. Hebrews 11, 7 says, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. We should be building arks for our families, arks for those that we know around us that are believers. Be building an ark to help save everyone you can. Praise the Lord for that. I'm going to close with Luke 
21, 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. So be looking for the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that this message will be a blessing to everybody that hears it. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, that you would bless this ministry and help us to reach more uh, with these with these sermons and with your word, uh, that more would come to the truth of the gospel and to be brought into your flock and into your true church. And Lord, uh, just bless each person that hears this and those that are with us today that as we go into the coming week, that we would have opportunities to share the truth, uh, to be a force against evil, and to shine your light more brightly in all that we do. And may it all be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, I want to thank you guys for being here today. Um, if you'd like to support the ministry, you just have to go to the way, the letter R122.org. Go to the donut pay, don, donate page. You can donate there. Uh, we need all the help we can get. Like I said, our churches in Kenya continue to grow. Uh, we have great pressing needs there that we're trying to meet. So we need your help. Um, God bless you guys. And I will see you next Sunday. If you have any topics you want me to address, shoot me an email, chat at the way, the letter R122.org. And let's get into some interesting stuff going forward. God bless. God bless.